Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome to the Words Matter Library. I'm Adam Levine. We are thrilled to be joined today by the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, Roger McNamee. Roger, welcome to Words Matter. What a pleasure to be here, Adam. We are also joined today by our sometime wingman and co-host, Dr. Gordon Goldstein, who, as you know, is an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, focusing on technology, cybersecurity, and foreign policy. Gordon, welcome. Great to be here. So, Roger, one of the things we try to do here is to help our listeners figure out two major questions, how we got here and where we're going. We try to stick to the basics here. Roger, how did you get here? (laughs) So I got here the old-fashioned way. I joined the investment world in 1982. I began my career on the first day of a bull market that's more or less lasted ever since. I was assigned to cover technology, which means I went to Silicon Valley when it was still focused on the space program just in front of the beginning of the personal computer industry. So I am, in many ways, the luckiest person alive professionally. And you can attribute most of the good things that followed to that starting condition. I was able to grow up with the personal computer industry. I happened to be the same basic age as Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And I was a musician, which meant that I was welcomed into the jam sessions that were characteristic of industry events in the 80s. And it allowed me to develop personal relationships with a lot of senior people in that industry at a time when that was a very unusual thing for an investor to do, at a time when people basically sat in their desk and made spreadsheets and tried to make forecasts of earnings. I was basically spending time with the industry, learning about products, learning which ones were going to succeed and fail. And in forming that very different approach to technology, I essentially began a career that allowed me to survive bear markets, industry transitions, and all of that. I was lucky enough to, you know, get through the the crash of 87. I, in 91, was able to start my first fund inside a venture capital firm called Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers, which meant that I was in their office when the internet happened. You know, Mark Andreessen brought the first idea for what became Netscape into the office. I was there that day. You know, Jeff Bezos brought what became Amazon into the office. I was there that day. You know, Larry and Sergey brought Google in. I was there that day. And I had a privileged seat where, you know, if I wasn't the one doing it, I at least got to watch it. In that sense, I was like Zelig or like uh, Forrest Gump, just in the right place at the right time repeatedly. In 2006, I was convinced that a new thing had begun. Basically, this group of people out of PayPal, led by Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and uh, Reid Hoffman, had identified a major change that was taking place, that we were going to move from an internet that was a web of pages to an internet that was a web web of people. And that insight was so profound because it suggested that this unmet dream of networking lots and lots of people together might happen. All the early efforts had failed for the same reason, that basically one of the values that had prized the internet was the notion of radical transparency, but also anonymity. And anonymity allowed trolls to take over whether it was America Online or Friendster or MySpace. And I was convinced that if somebody ever came along who guaranteed identity 
that was going to change everything and that was going to be what triggered the development of social networks. And there was this kid, Mark Zuckerberg. He created Facebook. And Facebook was only available in 2006 to high school and college students from the email account at school. So it was authenticated identity. You had a dot .edu. A dot e, and not just a dot .edu, not a dot .edu from a school they could verify. And not that they always did, but just that they could. And they also had privacy. They gave you control of what other people could see. I thought that was going to change everything. I was convinced Facebook was going to be as important or more important than Google was at that time, and Google was the most important tech company. I get an email from a senior executive at Facebook saying, my boss has got a crisis. He needs to talk to somebody who's been around a really long time and who can be both objective and discreet. Would you take a meeting? He came to my office. He was 22. The company was two years old. They hadn't even done news feed yet. So it was just a picture, your name and address, and your relationship status. Pretty much all that's important to you when you're in high school and college. So Mark comes in the office and he looks just like Mark Zuckerberg. He's got the flip-flops. He's got the t-shirt. He's got the hoodie. He's got the, the career bag. And he's only 22. And before the meeting started, I said, look, once you start talking, if you got a crisis, you're going to assume that everything I said is influenced by what you told me. So what I'd like to do is take two minutes to give you the context for why I took this meeting. He says, shoot, go ahead. I go, look, if it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer a billion dollars for Facebook, which basically had no revenue yet. I mean, they had nine million the prior year from banner ads for pizza. And as far as I know, no pizzas were actually delivered. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I say they're going to offer a billion dollars and everybody you know, your parents, your board of directors, your management team, your employees. Everybody's going to tell you, Mark, take the money. It's a billion dollars. You'll have 650 million bucks. You can change the world. And your venture capitalist is going to say, Mark, I'll back your next company to be every bit as good as Facebook. And I said, Mark, look, you and I don't know each other, but I just want to tell you something. Lots of people have two great ideas. No one in the history of Silicon Valley has ever had the perfect idea at the perfect time twice. I think this is the most important idea since Google. I think this is the perfect idea, and I think this is the perfect moment in time. If you believe in the idea, I hope you'll follow it through. What followed that was the most painful five minutes of my entire life. I'm in this room one-on-one -on -one with a kid. I've just laid this massive idea, and I'm expecting some feedback, like right away. What I get instead is five minutes of him pantomiming thinker poses. And, you know, at the one-minute mark, I'm telling myself, wow, he's being really respectful. He's really thinking about what I said. He must be trying to decide if he trusts me. And I respect that. At the two-minute mark, it's really uncomfortable. And I don't know if you've ever sat with somebody where you've just said something and you're expecting a response and nothing happens. At 15 seconds, it's weird. Most of my bosses saw us about 30, but yeah. Okay. At two minutes, it's, it starts <laughs> yes. to get really, really awkward. At three minutes, I'm literally digging trenches in the furniture. Had you? I have a question. Did you surprise him? Was that the, was that the issue? Had well, he never heard this before? I have no idea. Let me explain what happened. So at the five-minute mark, when I'm really ready to scream, he finally <laughs> relaxes, decides he can trust me, and he goes, you won't believe this, but what you just said, that's why I'm here. It just happened. Exactly the way you describe it. You got the price. You got the company. Got everybody's reaction is exactly right. How did you know? And I go, I didn't know. I've just been doing this a long time. This is why they asked you to come see me. And so he didn't want to sell the company, but he was afraid to disappoint everybody. So what I helped him do is to craft the message so that everybody would appreciate that they signed up for his vision. So it was not up to them to say the vision was over. And that if he was right about the vision, and I thought he was, and if he executed, and I thought he was capable of that, 
they were going to thank him for not selling the company because Microsoft or Yahoo would have just trashed him. That began a three-year period of me being one of his advisors. And it was a great relationship. I got to tell you, Mark, you can imagine anybody who sits there and thinks about something for five minutes without saying a word is not perhaps as socially sensitive as some people are. But in the world of Silicon Valley, that was not – I mean that was an extreme version of that problem. But th this is my tribe. I was totally cool with that. And he obviously for 22 was incredibly mature to think about something that hard. And every part of my relationship with him was great. I really liked him. I never once experienced what the social network shows, that whole side of him. And I was lucky enough that, you know, he needed to change out his management team. So I was able to help on that. And the key thing was introducing him to Sheryl Sandberg and helping to bring her into the company. Who had been at Google. She, well, and before that, she'd been at the Treasury Department where she was the chief of staff to Larry Summers. Was say, why, is that why you thought that was a good fit, well, that, no. that, that combination? Well, here's what was weird. So – in 1998-99, I was helping the Grateful Dead with their digital strategy and Cheryl was at the Treasury Department working with Bono on forgiving the debt of emerging countries who had gotten hopelessly in debt and whose economies were basically hamstrung by all the debt they had. So for the millennium, they were going to forgive billions of dollars of debt to these countries to revive their economies. And Bono heard about the Grateful Dead thing and said, can you find out who that guy is so I can meet him? And Cheryl goes – you're not even going to believe this, but my brother-in-law works for him and he's working on that project. So Cheryl introduced me to Bono, who in 2003 becomes my partner to form Elevation. So when Cheryl leaves the White House, she comes and hangs out in my office for, I don't know, four or six weeks. And she thought she was going to the investment business and I was really excited about that. But my partner pointed out, no, the woman is one of the greatest managers we're ever, who's ever lived. You know, if she can make Larry Summers successful – Right? I'm, yes. I mean, yes. she's really, 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 really good. And Larry was demonstrably, incredibly successful in that role. And so we introduced her to Google via John Doerr, our partner at Kleiner Perkins, who was sure. on the board. And so she goes to Google and she's part of the team that creates AdWords and she's the one who scales up that operation. So I'm convinced this is the closest fit you're going to find to Facebook. And it's exactly the problem Mark has because Mark's not interested in the advertising side at all. And, you know, I, so I call Mark up and I go, yeah, you know, first I suggest the idea to Cheryl because she comes to me and says, I've got an opportunity to go work at the Washington Post. And I'm going, are you insane? I mean, give me a break. Google's putting the Washington Post out of business. Remember, this is 2007. It's like, that would be nuts. I mean, I'm, a, you know, don't go all Woodward and Bernstein on me. I mean, this is like, <laughs> I, I love the Washington Post, but but that would be nuts. And I said, you really should go work at Facebook. And she goes, but he's 23. And I go, no, hang on. His mother is a psychologist. He's got nothing but sisters. He's going to be totally fine with a woman. And then I go to Mark and he goes, but she works at Google. And I go, Mark, give me a break. What is closer to Facebook than Google? And so anyway, they get together and they hit it off great. And so you can imagine, I'm a complete fan. I really love this company. And in 2009, the company's starting to put its business together. The issues are operational. That's not my strength. And so I, I tell Mark that, you know, it's time to move on, which is like a completely standard thing. You know, successful entrepreneurs need different things at different times. And it's better to be graceful about your exit and be the one who suggests it than to right. wait until you're irrelevant. And so I pulled back. And this is where I made a major f failure. I'm a professional analyst. And there were a bunch of signals that occurred after that that could have told me that there was something really wrong. But I missed them. And – it essentially was they started to form their business model, the one they have today in 2011, 2011, so a couple years after. And, you know, that's the time of the consent decree related to sharing friends' information, the thing that gave rise to Cambridge Analytica. And, you know, I don't 
because I'm no longer an insider, I don't know any of that stuff. They worked really hard to make sure it didn't become public. Company goes public in 2012. I had another opportunity to recognize that something wasn't quite right. And there were things not quite right. And I did have conversations with them and they didn't go well. And after that, I realized, you know what? I'm just going to sit back and watch and enjoy their success. And I did. And then in January 2016, beginning of the Democratic primary in New Hampshire, I start to notice things on Facebook that do not fit my worldview. I mean, I have this notion that, yeah, they make mistakes like all startups do. And they're young people. They're aggressive. They're going to make mistakes. But I thought they were really well-intentioned. I just, just to clarify, you saw things on Facebook that did not comport to your worldview as – a user or as somebody analyzing the business? So they didn't comport to my worldview as a person who believed in democracy. So the first thing that I saw was a set of memes, you know, images with text on them coming from Facebook groups that were at least notionally tied to the Bernie Sanders campaign. And they were deeply misogynistic. And the problem was that, you know, there's a lot of stuff on Facebook. On day one, one, one of my friends was sharing one of these memes. The next day, it was like there were four of them and then maybe eight the day after that. So it was it was growing on this geometric or at least on an exponential curve. And I thought that was a sign that somebody was spending money to get my friends to join these groups. I'm going, why would this these Facebook groups, all they had on them were these memes? Why would you spend money to do that? I mean, the Bernie Sanders campaign is not going to spend money on that. Right? It would make a terrible story if they get caught doing that. So who's doing that? I think it turned out it was the Russians, right? But we didn't know that then. And then in March of 2016, Facebook expelled a group for using the ad tools to gather data on people who expressed an interest in Black Lives Matter. They were selling that data to police departments. And I'm going, whoa, that is really evil. Now, Facebook did the right thing. They expelled them, but the harm had already been done. I'm thinking to myself, wow. I mean – that's a bad actor harming innocent people. Then June comes the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom. And there, the outcome was a eight-point swing relative to the polling the day before. And the Leave campaign, which prevailed, had a really inflammatory message, xenophobic message that they pumped out really hard over social media. The Remain campaign that lost had this really neutral message of, hey, we got the best deal in the European Union. Let's not mess it up. And that's when I realized that Facebook, because of the way the virality worked, conveyed an advantage to a political campaign with an inflammatory message over one with a neutral message, which is inherently anti-democratic. And that really bothered me. So this is the moment you discovered the capacity to weaponize social media. Yeah, but don't give me too much credit. That's the first time I recognized the symptoms. I haven't put together all the pieces yet. The book is written from the perspective of Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window, right? I mean, I start as a complete idiot. I mean, the failures of analysis at the beginning of this thing really, in retrospect, really bother me. And, you know, for all of our listeners, I just want you to understand that I spent 35 years analyzing this industry. I should have seen this earlier, and I did not. And it took me longer to understand what I saw than I would have liked, which is why I think the Jimmy Stewart metaphor is right. Because, you know, in an Alfred Hitchcock movie, always it's – the every man starts out really not knowing anything and slowly catches up to the game. And that's exactly what happened here. In October, there's a report that Housing and Urban Development has cited Facebook for advertising tools that allow discrimination in the housing market in violation of the Fair Housing Act. In between, we've learned about Manafort. And right at the same time of the, the HUD story, we learned that the Russians are trying to interfere in the election. I got to alert Mark and Cheryl. 
So I, I had written an op-ed for the tech blog Recode, and instead of publishing, I sent it to Mark and Cheryl. And it basically says, guys, there is something about the business model and algorithms of Facebook that allow bad actors to harm innocent people. I cited those four examples plus a few other things. I'm going, you have a responsibility to get this right. And they're saying, they came back to me immediately, and they couldn't have been more polite. But they were also dismissive. They treated it like a PR problem. But they hand, out of respect, they handed me off to one of their senior guys. And so I'm talking to him about this. And he goes, Roger, we're a platform, not a media company. And he's citing a law, what is known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, that says that Internet companies are platforms, not media companies, therefore not responsible for data put in by third parties. And we're going back and forth on this. And then the election happens. Right? So there's nine days between me sending the first op-ed and the election. The election happens, and the next day, I call up the guy, and I go, dude, the Russians tipped the election using Facebook. You have got to get on this. You've got to do what Johnson Johnson did after the Tylenol poisoning <clears throat> in 1983 in Chicago. You have got to defend your the people who use your product. You've got to open up to regulators and to investigators. You have got to get ahead of this thing. It's exactly what Boeing should have done with 737 MAX, and they just made exactly the same mistake as Facebook. I spent three months pleading with him. You've got to do this. You're a trust business. The law is not going to protect you if people think that you're responsible for undermining either democracy or anything else. And so I finally give up in February 2017. I realized these guys just think it's PR. They do not think this is a business problem. And so I go, I basically set out to find out what caused the problem. It's April of 2017 when I learned that, when I meet Tristan Harris, who had been the design ethicist at Google. And Tristan had just been on 60 Minutes talking about what he called brain hacking. This turned out to be the mechanism that I had missed because I didn't really start doing this in size until 2011, 2012. The notion is you got to get people to come back, right? you got to get people coming to your sites. So they do that with rewards. They appeal to this human need to be rewarded. And they play the same game that slot machines play. They make the rewards variable. They're unpredictable. And they do that with notifications. They do it with likes. They do it with all these things that appeal to vanity and to our need for, for approval. That creates a habit. And for an awful lot of people with a smartphone, that habit turns into an addiction. I mean, I ask people, when do you check your cell phone first thing in the morning? Right? Is it before you pee or while you're peeing? Because those are the only two choices for most people, <laughs> exactly. right? And, you know, so we're all addicted to one degree or another. Then they got to get you to actually engage with the platform. And so what they learned was that happiness doesn't is not that viral because a lot of people get jealous. They see these perfectly manicured presents on Facebook or Instagram and you know, that's going to be a turnoff, but man, if you can make somebody afraid or if you can make them outraged, they will share that because getting people to share your fear or your outrage is comforting. And so that's how Companies like Facebook, Google, Instagram, YouTube wind up with this model where disinformation, conspiracy theories, and fear-mongering are the driver of their economic model. It just basically causes more virality. People see more as it makes the business more valuable. And is this why you conclude in the book that this business model is based on what you call surveillance and behavior modification? Well, so this is the first part. I, and I've learned this the actual history quite recently from an amazing book by a Harvard professor named Shoshana Zuboff. The book is called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. The book came out at the same time I did. And in my book, I hypothesize all her major things, but she spent 10 years and has all the data. Okay. And so I really, it's a very dense book. You know, you can get the concepts from me, but if you want to understand it, you got to read 
uh, Zuboff. So she points out that in 2002, Google was doing what all traditional marketers do. They gathered data from their customer in order to improve the product that they give that customer. Product in those days was just search. And a genius at Google by the name of Hal Varian noticed that only a couple percent of what they were getting was necessary for improving the search product. And they got all this other data. So he went about figuring out, did it have any signal in it? Could you learn something from it? And what he discovered was it had some positive signal for behavioral prediction. And then they go, huh, what would happen if we had other products besides search? Because all we know is purchase intent. That's all that you learn from search. It's very valuable, but what if we knew who they were? So then they create Gmail. And because of Varian's insight, they go, well, we're not just going to find out who they are. We're going to find out what they're thinking. So we're going to scan all the emails. Find, you know, if you want to do behavioral prediction, it's nothing like email for telling you what people are thinking, right? And they go, but we don't know where they are. So then they create Google Maps. And they start basically invading people's private space. And then they realize we can do the same thing in public spaces. So they create these cars with cameras and they start going up and down streets, notionally for Google Maps initially, but then they're doing what they, you know, became known as Street View, where they're taking pictures of our front yard and our house. And they do the same thing from the sky. Then they do Google Glass so they can get into your face. And so what Google's incredible insight was that, that there was this untapped resource that nobody had ever monetized and commercialized called private and personal data, as well as public and open data. Zuboff makes the point that it's exactly what robber barons did at the turn of the 20th century, only they did it with land and work, and they called them real estate and labor, and they turned these two things that had been not markets into markets. They dominate the markets. They set the prices. They win. And at Google did exactly the same thing for behavioral prediction. And the problem with this was that if all they were doing was improving the products and giving you better ad targeting, that might have been fine. But then they realized, you know what? We can make software products that raise the probability that our outcome will be correct. And one of the things I want to try to understand in terms of what you just described, which I have to say is incredibly frightening when I listen to your oh, book. Oh, dude, I haven't even gotten to the book. I, I know you haven't gotten to the book. <laughs> but all I could think was the only thing George Orwell left out was that we would actually voluntarily carry the devices. And not only would we carry them, if you tried to take them from us, we would fight you. Right. The second thing is when you talk about that period – when Google first realized this, was that possible even five years earlier? And no. I asked that question no. because of the no, no. data capacity and, in which and, you and, could and, store. And, and to be clear, yes, the, the, there was a key pivot point that takes place in roughly 2003. The computer industry from 1956 to 2002 was always operating with constraints. There was never enough processing power. There was never enough storage or memory or bandwidth to do what you wanted to do. And the PayPal mafia, so the Peter Thiel and, and Elon Musk and, and Reid Hoffman, those guys, they had, you know, these incredible insights. One was this pivot, you know, from the web of pages to the web of people. But the other great insight they had was these, all the constraints were coming off. That meant for the first time you'd be able to do global products. And, you know, they came up with this notion that Reid Hoffman calls blitz scaling, this notion that you get rid of all the friction and you just ignore all criticism you don't ask permission for anything. You just go for it. And that's what led Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube to follow the model they were on. And again, the advertising model was key because if you had a price, that was a form of friction that would slow people down. So you want to make it free. You want to deliver a lot of value, but you for sure do not want to be honest about what you're really doing. So the way to think about this, and I just had a... Uh, 
breakfast this morning with a brilliant man who was one of the early players in Amazon who made a point to me that what we're really dealing with here is digital slavery because their notion is that they're taking ownership of your digital life. And again, at the beginning, it was just about giving you better advertising. But when they, if you think about all the products that Google amassed and all the ones that Facebook amassed, they basically were able to collect every consumer with any discretionary spending in the entire world. And they create a bottleneck so that any marketer who wants to reach those people has to go through Facebook or Google. And what they give them is perfect information because they have made us all into digital slaves. They have everything that is known about us. And on the other side, they control the information we receive because they can, if you look, you know, they have this things, right, called filter bubbles where they, each one of us has our own Truman show and they, quote, give us what we like, unquote. What they're really doing is giving us what they want us to have. So where markets are normally have uncertainty on both sides and the whole way a market works is that the buyer and the seller have to negotiate and come to common ground on what it's worth to each of them. Now they've transformed the world into a, into a market where the seller has perfect information and the buyer has only information the seller chooses to give. And that is really undermining democracy. And here's where it gets really weird and really dangerous. Google and Facebook then created a set of products, filter bubbles being one of them, recommendation engines being another, and, and artificial intelligence machine learning being a another class that allow them to nudge people in directions that make those behavioral predictions come true way, way, way more often. If you're looking for a car and Google's analyzed the 200 steps that come in early and they realize at round step 50 of the 200, you might be buying a car and they've looked at everybody. So they kind of see what things are common to people buying cars and they haven't yet looked for a car, right? These are all the things that happen before you're looking for a car and they can start to show you things along the way that nudge you in the direction they want you to go. So if, if BMW is willing to pay more than Chevrolet, right, they're going to show you that. But if Chevy is willing to pay more than BMW, they're going to point you in that direction. We all think this, these recommendation engines are taking what we like and showing us more of what we're going to like. But no, they're taking what we like and showing us more of what they want to sell. Right. And so when you think about digital slavery, the fact that they're controlling the set of stuff we see, so that when you do a search on Google and you look under those uh, shortcuts, the shortcuts are full of conspiracy theories, they're full of nonsense, right? Because that stuff is what engages people. So if you think about the time when I grew up, which is, you know, born in the 50s, growing up in the 60s, we had filter bubbles then imposed by network television. Right. But they drove us together. I mean, everybody my age saw the Kennedy funeral. They saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. They saw the moon landing. You know, and even all, 10 years later, watched All in the Family. And they watched the end right up through the end of MASH, right? right? That was the end of that era. And that filter bubble was a shared set of facts. But in the world of Facebook and Google, that's not their interest at all. They want to give you what you want. So in effect, there are, in Facebook's case, 2.4 billion Truman shows, everybody with their own reality. And you see this. In the extraordinary growth in the percentage of people who believe things that are demonstrably not true, right? We have a third of the country that believes that there's no link between human activity and climate change. There's like 7% or something that believes that there is a link between vaccination and autism. And scientifically, both of those are demonstrably not true. And if everybody could accept the facts, we could then disagree about what to do about them, right? People could still say... I don't want to have vaccines. 
and they could still say, I don't want to do anything about climate change. But we have to agree on the facts. You cannot have a democracy where 40% of the population believes things that are demonstrably not true and are unwilling to entertain any conversation at all. We, be, we begin every show here by pointing out to people that they are entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Indeed. I mean, words matter, right? And I mean, I've heard that somewhere around here. And, <laughs> and the thing that, that I look at in this whole thing is it's not because these people are bad, right? This is not a conspiracy. We live in a time when since 1981, we've been steadily eliminating all of the rules that government normally imposes on capitalism. The way capitalism works best is government creates a set of rules that apply to everybody and then enforces them, and they enforce them equally on everyone. You know, the country was in a bad place in 81. We made a, a choice to change strategies, to go away from collective action towards supporting individuals. And that demonstrably worked really well for most people for a better part of two decades. But I think the last 17, 18 years, it's pretty demonstrably only worked for a tiny percentage of the population. And so you've wound up seeing things like Exxon conducting its own foreign policy in countries that, you know, were right. censored by the U.S. And you've seen other companies, you know, you've seen the banks destroy the economy and then not be punished for it. And, you know, so the tech guys don't really stand out. In fact, in anything, I think they're more idealistic. It's just that no one has ever told them that that data is not something you should just grab and then do whatever you want with it. I mean, I ask the questions, the following questions, really important ones. Why is it not a crime for a company that offers email to scan and digest what's in that email? Why is it not a How many people know that? How many people I have know no idea. that Google, I happen to know it from the businesses I was in. I know Gordon knows it. Obviously, you know it. But I have this sense that there are a lot of people walking around out there who don't know that. And then what do you say to those people who, like me, aren't on Facebook Aren't well, on Twitter. Well, that's what they I'm getting think, to. Yeah, they think they're safe. So the critical thing is, yes, your data's out there. Yes, you're a good person. And that has nothing to do with this problem. So if you're on Gmail, your messages are being scanned by a computer. They want to make predictions about your behavior. And so they're looking for clues. And if you want to imagine a bad scenario there, just imagine that a family member dies. You live in a place like Pittsburgh, which has limited number of air, airline options coming out. And who is Google going to sell it? data to. They might sell it to your airline. Your airline might choose to raise the price because they know you have this narrow window to travel. The information asymmetries are really staggering. And in theory, Kayak would help you around the problem. But what if you were in a real hurry and you just went to the airline, right? I'm just saying it, yeah. it can work out very badly. And by the way, I, I tell the story of having been in a minor car accident, emailed my mother, told her about it. By the time I got home, I've got three or four emails for body shops and other things. Yeah. From so, and and, you, and yeah. you might imagine that's a positive, right? So let's go to the rest of them. Why is it legal? Why isn't it a crime for credit card processors to sell your credit card transactions data? Why isn't it a crime for sailor companies and others to sell your location data? Why isn't it a crime for health and wellness apps to sell your health and wellness data? data if it came from a hospital, you're definitely not allowed to share why is it okay for them to sell that to platforms? Why isn't there a prohibition on selling your browsing history? And the biggest one of all is why is it even legal to collect data right. on kids well, don't we under sign 18? That, don't we sign that little piece of – check that box when we sign well, up for everything? Is, but is not that, always. I mean okay. the credit card thing, I'm not aware of where in the credit card processors get that right. I mean because we don't actually have a personal relationship with them. The cellular guys, you know, they're mostly doing aggregated data, 
But if you have somebody's browsing history, you're going to be able to disaggregate that, right? And, I mean, with enough data, you can disaggregate anything. So I think we have to ask the question, why any of that stuff is legal? Why it's not a crime? Because it creates a digital slavery for literally everyone. You don't have to be on Facebook. You do not have to be on Instagram. They have it on literally everyone. Each of these guys has profiles on everybody. And whether you realize it or not, they are controlling the information you get. Not all of it. You can obviously consciously go to the Washington Post, New York Times, wherever, to get more information. But if you do the quick and dirty thing and just use Google or just use Facebook, as so many people do, or just use Instagram or YouTube, you're going to be managed. So at the end of the day, I just think that this is undermining our democracy because we're in the situation where the vast majority of the people are having that experience, and it is preventing competition. It is preventing innovation. Let me give you an example where it prevents innovation. The big guys, and this is Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and to a lesser extent, Apple, are competing in artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence ought to be the technology penicillin in the 21st century. The problem is you can't have much innovation there because these guys are so desperate to compete with each other and to compete with China, not Apple, but the other guys all are competing with China in behavioral modification, that they've hired... I mean, basically, anybody with a pulse in artificial intelligence gets hired by these guys, and they never get a chance to pursue a vision other than the very narrow vision of these giant platforms who want to be in behavioral modification. I've seen they go, wait a minute. I'll give you another example here. And this is the one that really makes my hair stand on end. So you may have been on one of these uh, sites that say, we want to verify you're not a robot. Please right. touch the pictures that are a street sign or touch the pictures that are a car or a bus. That's a Google product called CAPTCHA. And they are not using those pictures to find out if you're a human. They know you're a human from your mouse movement. The pictures are there to train Google's artificial intelligence for self-driving cars. And what are they – how are they – explain a little bit of that. The artificial intelligence needs to be trained from data from the real world. And they could go around driving around taking pictures of street signs. But something they've got to point out, that's a street sign. That's a bus. It has to have millions and millions of examples of what a car or bus and all different angles. And that's why those pictures are a lot of them are from distant angles, right? Right. You know, sometimes it's they, hard to tell what it is. That's said. the point. That used to be up close and now it's further out. And now they almost always make you do two pages of it. I feel like I'm being graded on that. Exactly. I feel well, like and, and the I, point failed, is, I failed the first one. Well, right. and I, I want to go to the Financial Times and I think it's Connie Nast and all the other people doing it and say, do you people have any idea how idiotic you are about this? It has nothing to do with verifying you're a human. They verify you're a human based on your mouse movement. Now, here, think about this. This is the scary part. So imagine that your mouse movements are very consistent over a long period of time, and then suddenly they get slower and more wobbly. Let's say that this on the first day that happens, this is the first signal that you may have Parkinson's or some other neurological disorder. Now, in a perfect world, they would literally get on the horn with you and go, yo, go to your doctor you may have a neurological problem. But the way things are right now, they're under no obligation to tell you. In fact, they're not even under an obligation to protect your privacy. They're free to go and sell that information to the highest bidder. And in the United States, that will almost certainly be your insurance company, which will either raise your rates or terminate your coverage before you even know you have a symptom. And my simple point is, in a world where 
there was a free flow of ideas and a free flow of commerce and there was no monopoly in, in around all these ideas, you would have a startup sitting there going, we're going to take the signal from your mouse and give you an insurance product that warrants you if you ever have a neurological problem. It would be dead easy to do that. Now, it would be incredibly valuable to society. But the way the incentives work today, we're not the customer. We're not even the product, which is what it would be in a normal advertising. We're the fuel. We're a source of data. And my guess is inside these companies, it probably never occurs to anybody to even think about us as the customer for the product. And again, it's not because they're bad people. It's because that is the culture of American business today. And I say this as a 35-year capitalist. What we have now is this really extreme, weird form. And it really bugs me because I don't think it's healthy. I think that what winds up happening over time is you're going to see that people, the sellers have so much of a price advantage that the people who have products that are necessities are going to take up everybody's income. And the choice of things in the market will inevitably be reduced because people won't have the same discretionary income. Because the, there's so much good information that if you got to buy a car, they're going to price it to your resistance point. Roger, let's explore further how these tools of surveillance and behavior modification affect the political process. And specifically, let's talk about 2016. Yeah. As you know, when uh, the initial reports emerged about Russian-generated content – uh, Facebook said that the number of users had, that had been exposed to that content was, uh, say, 10 to 12 million. Within a matter of months, that number had grown to 126 million <laughs> Facebook users. And yeah. as you note in your book, there were 137 million votes cast in the 2016 election. Tell us about what you think the impact of that was on the outcome of the election, and if you can, explain to our listeners, the significance of Cambridge Analytica. So I think you have to break the election issue into two parts, the Russian part and the Steve Bannon part. You know, the analyst in me has to tip my hat. The same way I view the business models of Google and Facebook on their own terms as being brilliant. I have to note that the Russians had an insight before anybody else politically that for the price of an F-35 fighter jet, 100 million bucks, they could probably change or at least influence the outcome of democratic elections in the United Kingdom did, and the United did it States. Did they cost that much? I, I don't know. I'm saying for less than that. For right? less than that, right. They might have done the whole campaign across all of Europe and the United States for that price. And, you know, if you're a country with a GDP the size of Italy and you want to be a global power, that's really cost effective. And so we hypothesized when we first went to Washington, the Russians started between 2013 and 2014 with a campaign to sow really discord in the United States and lack of faith in democracy. And they, they would pick a bunch of really volatile issues and, came, and push both sides. So they, they would look at guns and they would look at you know things like Black Lives Matter and religion and immigration. And in the Republican primary, you know, there were 17 candidates, 16 of them running kind of standard plain vanilla Republican plans. And one guy comes in talking about immigration and guns and all, you know, you know what I'm saying? One guy's just on their issues and nailing it. And that's Trump. And so he got a huge benefit from that. Then when you get to the general election, things change. There, the Russians are still a factor because they've done the hacks of the Democratic National Committee, the Democratic Cam Congressional Campaign Committee. They've gotten from the DNC, the Hillary Clinton campaign playbook. So they know exactly what the Clinton campaign is doing. And Clinton campaign you know, doesn't know that right away. And they get from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee all the data in every congressional district, strengths and weaknesses and all that. So they literally have perfect information. 
And we know that the DNC stuff found its way to, some of it found its way to WikiLeaks. We don't know what happened to the Clinton campaign book. We don't know what happened to the DCCC. But if you watch what happens later in the campaign, it's not crazy to imagine that it was a factor. But this is where Bannon comes in. And he had a genius insight, which was that the same way there's a Truman Show for ideas, everybody gets what they want. He could use that in a campaign to essentially run a different campaign for every single voter. And instead of having to convince them that your candidate is the right person on a set of issues, you just find the emotionally weakest link for each person, and you use that to suppress their vote. And just clarify for listeners Bannon's connection to Cambridge Analytica. Okay, so so Stephen Bannon created Cambridge Analytica. Backed uh, by? Backed by Robert Mercer. And so they, they create Cambridge Analytica with this notion initially that they're going to apply a new idea called uh, psychographics to elections to identify, you know, six or seven core factors that would determine how people were likely to vote and how they could be persuaded. The psychographics part of it I don't think ever really came into play. Cambridge Analytica's great contribution to this was that they they basically misappropriated tens of millions of Facebook user profiles, 30 million of which they were able to match to voter files. Now, again, uh, there are only slightly more than, I think, 200 million registered voters in the United States and 137 million voted, and he's got 30 million of them matched to Facebook. And he, and he also won by 80,000 80, votes. Yes, right. Very small number. Yeah, you're right. The incredible thing about this, and it was a truly genius insight, was that they were going to focus on three groups. And they've been really public about this, right? Brad Parscale was on 60 Minutes. Like, they're going to focus on suburban white women, people of color, and idealistic young people. And they're going to suppress the vote. They're basically going to go in there and say, we're too polarized to move them from Clinton to Trump. But we can get a whole bunch of Clinton people not to vote. And so that's what they did. There were 4 million people who voted for Obama in 2012, who did not vote at all in 2016. And what percentage you can attribute to this, I do not know, but it's it's material. And then on top of that, they've got the targeting. I mean, if you look at where they spent the money, again, we don't have exact data because Facebook has not been forthcoming on this at all. But it appears that their targeting was uncanny. Now, it turns out that the Obama campaign data somehow managed to make itself into the market. So you would have had four-year-old data you might have been able to use, but... It was so uncanny that, it, it, you know, it's not crazy to imagine they had really fresh data. And as you note in the book, Facebook embedded three Facebook professionals. Oh, it's not just that. Facebook, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft all have people embedded along with Cambridge Analytica. And in the case of Facebook, it's really ironic because Facebook was caught by The Guardian in December of 2015 still doing business with, you know, with Cambridge Analytica, which is still on this data set. And so Facebook, in theory, not only banned Cambridge Analytica from using Facebook, they, in theory, forced Cambridge Analytica to destroy the data set. And there they were, Cambridge Analytica, with the data set inside the Trump campaign, working with Facebook guys, Cambridge Analytica, creating the campaigns. Again, Truman Show, everybody gets their own pitch. You know, if they find out, Adam, that you really like beagles and they want to discourage people from voting, they say, well, both those candidates, you know, drown beagles in the bathtub. Right. Right. And then you don't want to vote. You know, you don't want to contaminate yourself by voting for these guys. They have this thing where the election is incredibly close. You have WikiLeaks. You have Comey. But you also need this thing 
And the Facebook employees ran the ad campaigns, right? Cambridge Analytica does the targeting. They pick the ads for each person. The Facebook people ran it. And in 2012, Facebook was very public about the fact that they made changes in the platform to improve the quality of political advertising, which aided Obama because he was the one doing it. And it's not crazy to imagine they did the same thing in 2016. It's also not crazy to imagine that when the Russians came in and did their advertising on Facebook, that they would have received advertising support services as, as every other significant advertiser does. So Facebook's role in the election, and again, it's not just Facebook, it's also Instagram. Obviously, Google and YouTube are a factor. Google, because the search engine results were easily gamed and frequently were gamed. You know, if you went after a debate and you look up, if you just put in Clinton won, you know, most of the results would be Trump won. And, you know, if you go into YouTube, all kinds of nonsense was in there. Obviously, Twitter was a factor. And, you know, all of this stuff, if you look at it, they were engineers. This genius guy, band comes in with a brand new idea that's going to transform electoral politics. And they're looking at this going, wow, we ought to figure out if this is going to work. I bet it never occurred to them that there might be an issue there. Yeah, right? I, These are not bad people. What we have here is manslaughter, not murder. Yeah, but as as they would say in Texas, that might be a distinction without a difference. Well, hang on. In, I'm, in, but I, I'm, in, in, in terms of the result, I understand that. I understand. Intent. I know the people, right? right? They are not – this is not about bad people. This is about bad outcomes done by – these are the, the unintended consequences of well-intended strategies, but happening at a global scale because the industry does not take care. There are no standards of safety or efficacy relative to software, none at all. And that is nuts, and that's what has to change. So that gets us to what do we do? How do we stop? Can it, first of all, by 2020 – can it be stopped? I know that's your mission. Well, so hang on. 2018 gives us hope, right? Because in 2018, the three groups that were most suppressed in 2016 all turned out in huge numbers. So this suburban white women, people of color, and idealistic young people all blew out the numbers in 2018 in spite of there being more disinformation in the market. So we can learn. I'm really optimistic about that. I really think we need the political conversation that I'm focused on right now is in a sense – targeted primarily post-2020 because I really think that we need to go after the business model. We need to ban the third-party commerce in our most personal data. We need to end digital slavery. And we need to, at the same time, use antitrust law to create an open space for alternative products. I was really impressed by Senator Elizabeth Warren's proposal because she's, you know, people focused on breaking up the companies, but that's not the core of what she's saying. She's saying that's the last step if they don't do the right thing. But what you really want to do is prevent them when they operate a market the way Facebook operates an advertising market or Google does or Amazon operates a marketplace. You can also be a participant in that market. That's actually an age-old American value. We never used to allow that until fairly recently. And you shouldn't be able to use your monopoly power to suppress competition by hiring all of the AI people who are out there in the world or sharing data from Google to Instagram to Barry Snapchat or, you know, to subsidize a new business out of a profitable one, you know, just because you can to prevent any competitor from coming near you. Those are all Teddy Roosevelt style things, right? right? And, you know, very much Republican values being applied to a situation that is not about right versus left. It's about right versus wrong. And I really applaud Senator Warren for coming out on that issue. Senator Warren has really gotten that 
And it's interesting because she's been on this issue for a long time. And one of the things that really impressed me most about her when I first met her was how she had noted before I did that the similarity between what was wrong in tech with what was wrong in the banking industry. And then Senator Klobuchar has followed also very supportive. My goal is to make sure that every candidate's on that. I mean, I'm currently working with the Trump administration, both in the Department of Justice Antitrust Division and in the Federal Trade Commission. And I truly applaud the people in both of those agencies for being completely open to these ideas. I have no idea if they're going to agree with me in the end. But the point is, they're embracing the discussion. They recognize there's a problem here, and they know that in tech, antitrust is a pro-growth form of government intervention. It's one that historically has created industry after industry. And starting in 56 with the creation of the computer industry and the creation of Silicon Valley with the transistor, then got IBM that creates the software industry, and then the PC industry, and then the AT&T breakup, which accelerates the uh, it, it, it does a bunch of things. It accelerates cellular. It basically creates the internet because it creates broadband data. And then the Microsoft thing that creates the internet we know today. And in each case, the target company went to all-time highs afterwards. So, I mean, it's really, you know, it's like, why is anybody afraid of, of antitrust? It's nuts. Antitrust is like, if you're a capitalist, if you're pro-growth, you definitely want to take a really serious look at antitrust. And, you know, those are the things we got to do beyond. For, for 2020, I think the core thing is to educate everybody. Do not get your political stuff from social media. Do not trust what you see on Google. Do not trust what you see on YouTube. They're going to be deep fakes, which are these you know videos and audio things that sound or look like an authentic thing, but are actually completely doctored. You know, you just got to be really careful. I think people have got to spend more time, get more deeply engaged, to do more of what they did in 2018, and recognize this stuff really matters. That right now, digital slavery is a huge problem in this country. We are all having our digital persona in bondage. We need to get that back. We can't have a functioning democracy. We can't have a functioning economy as long as things are the way they are now. As somebody who's lived in the political system almost all of my adult life, when I listen to you talk, those changes need to be made through obviously the political process. Yeah. No, this is entirely a political how do, process. How do we ensure that those very companies who we saw allow for the manipulation of the political process do not – manipulate that process well, to protect their interests. I mean, this is America. They're going to do their best, right? <laughs> right? And I mean, Google's the largest lobbying firm in the well, country. Well, that, that's why I asked. I think, I think Facebook is maybe top number three or four, right? Amazon's in the top ten. If they're going to let others use that platform, as they call it, for their political ends, why wouldn't they use their well, own platform? In, 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 reality, in reality, I think also there are a lot of companies jealous and looking to get in, right? The car companies all want a piece of that action. Right. What they don't realize is they're going to be like a peripheral. They'll be there to gather data for Amazon and for, for Google. And, you know, I think that the telcos want to be there as well, and you know, lots of people want to be there. And I don't think they realize that they, you have to look back to what the robber barons did, that once they got control of real estate and, and labor, they just went through one industry after another, and that's what's going to happen here. I mean, these guys are going after cars. They're going after energy. They're going to go after banking. And they have the best data, and they have control of what the customers think. And I'm sorry, but that's that's a hurdle that's going to be hard to get over. So I think basically we have 229 million people that should be on one side of this issue and the 1 million employees of those companies or less than a million employees on the other side. We have to make politicians stand up on this issue. The junior senator from California who's running for president, Senator Harris, I mean, she's a very, very, very capable person. But I think she, it's important for her to demonstrate that she's not the senator from Google and Facebook. 
I'm ready to embrace her if she does that, but she got to do it. Right now, we have two people on the correct side of this, Senator Warren and Senator Klobuchar. And I invite everybody else. There's plenty of time. I mean, this is a hard issue. Nobody gets it on the first try. And, you know, it's still, I mean, we're at the beginning of 2019, right? I mean, there's plenty of time. But they got to be in the right place. They got to recognize that that protecting the prerogatives of monopolists has a terrible history in the United States politically. And it's going to have a terrible history here. I look at state AGs. There's some amazing work going on at state attorneys general on this issue. Facebook has its first criminal inquiry. I'm pretty sure that's not going to be the last. Right. Because an awful lot of these things look like an invasion of, of people's space. If you did the same thing in the real world, it would be criminal. I was thinking that the FBI did to citizens what Google's doing to citizens would be the largest scandal in the history well, of the country. There are only so many times you get to be innocent of making the same mistake. And right. then eventually it goes from being manslaughter to being murder. And I'm sitting there going, guys, I want to be your friend. So the, prote- Just, the, the protection of personal information and privacy polls extremely high. So let's hypothesize that there will be a – and I'll bet digital slavery polls really low once we do that poll. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's presume for a minute that you're right and that there's an incipient emerging consensus for the protection of personal information. If you were to apply that to big tech and regulate big tech in a practical sense, what would the outcome be? What would Facebook look like? What would Google look like if you were able to – enforce these privacy protections? Well, to be clear, they, I think the businesses would look more or less unchanged, but there would be a significant reduction in their profits because so much of the profit is based on this digital slavery. I think if you roll them back to the parts of the business that we all thought were benign, they're still profitable. I, I was at a venture capital event where I was speaking about the book earlier this week, and I asked people, I said, you know, what do you think the over and under is on replacing Facebook if you vaporized it? And most people thought around two weeks. And by the way, that wasn't two weeks to create the product. That was two weeks to create it and then decide which was the winner. That may be a slight exaggeration, but the point is there are substitutes for everything that Google does. And by the way, that concept of digital slavery belongs to a brilliant man named Felix Anthony. And I want to make sure he gets credit for it because he was kind enough to share it. And I just, I think everybody should know it. The problem with this whole thing is we've been totally focused on preserving what they have, right? It's the same problem we have in journalism when we're looking at local journalism and what we're trying to do is preserve a business model instead of trying to preserve the countervailing power of sunlight on local politics. Solve the raw issue and then the economy will take care of itself because the issue of are people going to have to give up all the things they like? Not in a million years. I mean there's no way you're going to have to give up the things you like. The market's there for them, right? These guys aren't going to go away. Right. I mean, these are not businesses that depend on surveillance and digital servitude to work. I mean, they worked just fine before that. They'll work fine now. Now, will there be a little bit less sushi in the cafeteria? Maybe. But that's probably okay, right? <laughs> I think everyone agrees that's okay. And and I'm, I'm sort of sitting there going, look, I don't know all the answers. I am learning every day. I learn in every conversation I have. My only point is that... I have a biography that allows me to raise the issues. I've seen it from both sides. We hope you keep doing that. Well, and I've, I've also benefited from it, right? And so I feel a real obligation to try to 
redress, try to fix something that's going wrong unintentionally, but it's gone wrong disastrously. And, you know, rather than being retired, which is what I was doing and sitting back and watching this, I just want to get engaged and do my part. And there's so many brilliant people doing this hard work, the ones doing the real the real policy work, the real analytics, the real um, – the alternatives. I want to shine a light on them and then, you know, get out of the way. But for now, I'm going to keep doing this because we're still early in the process. I mean, you know, hopefully your listeners got something from this. And I want you to understand I'm immensely optimistic. And I'm optimistic because when you get an issue that's right versus wrong instead of right versus left, it doesn't matter how polarized the country is. These guys have so overstepped the bounds of what's reasonable that I just think the politics of this are, relatively speaking, a lot easier when I, than they were when I thought the problem was just Facebook. Right. And, you know, so knock wood in 2020, we're going to make huge strides. And the key thing is, is if everybody, we do this together. I wrote the book knowing that it was just the first chapter of the overall story. So what I was trying to do is to prepare people for dealing with a problem that was going to continue to unfold. And then I give you some thoughts about how to protect yourself and how to protect your children, which is really important, then what government needs to do and then what I'm doing. And the beautiful thing is how many people have come out of the woodwork to join in the conversation. I mean, Felix Anthony, I mean, he knows so much more about the underlying technology than I do that it's, it's just a beautiful thing. And I've met all these amazing people and they all care. And there are people inside these companies that care deeply about getting to better outcomes. And I want to help them get there. The book is called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Roger McAmey, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to be continued. We hope you come back. And words matter. Thank you so much. Take care. And here is a special offer for our listeners. Go to audible.com slash words matter and start a 30-day free trial. That's audible.com slash words matter. Or text words matter to 500 Five zero zero. Audible, because words matter. And finally, we want to thank our friends and partners at the Hangar Studios. Since we launched, Words Matter has been recorded and produced by Jennifer Ho, Chad Dugatz, and the entire Hangar Studios team. They're total pros. The Hangar Studios will help you find your voice, find your audience, and deliver that top-notch audio quality needed for success in the podcast world. If you have a podcast you're trying to get off the ground, go to www.thehangarstudios.com and book a session. Thanks to Jennifer Chad and the entire team, we've been able to get our podcast off the ground with people we love working with. That's www.thehangarstudios.com. The Hangar Studios speak freely. 